0: This is Anand Venigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, history, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Patrick Newman. He is Assistant Professor of Economics at Florida Southern College. He completed his PhD in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. He is a 2018 Mises Institute Research Fellow. Murray Rothbard, in the 1970s, was creating a history of America's earliest days. He called it Conceived in Liberty. It would span from the first days of colonization down to the period of the Constitution. Currently, there are four volumes published, but the fifth volume remained in limbo for some time. Until now. Professor Patrick Newman, who has before edited a collection of Rothbard's writings called The Progressive Era, has now been able to unearth the fifth volume. It will be released next year, in 2019. So I want to thank Newman for joining us today on the Letter of Liberty. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to uh, talk about the book.
0: So, explain for my listeners, please, a little bit about what Conceived in Liberty was about.
1: Sure. So, uh, Murray Rothbard, in general, was a well known uh, Austrian economist and libertarian thinker, and one of his projects was on a history of colonial America. Um, so, it's about, say, 1600 to 1789. And this really grew out of a project in the 1960s to write an American history book from a libertarian perspective. Uh, Rothbard just kept finding more things he wanted to talk about, more facts, uh, you know, tax rebellions, neglected individuals, et cetera, that he ended up writing, uh, five volumes just on the 1600s and 1700s. Uh, four of these were published in the 1970s around the bicentennial of uh, the Declaration of Independence, 1776. Uh, volume 1 sort of spoke about the founding of the colonies. Uh, volume 2 is about the first half of the, seven, of the 1700s and how the colonies grew when the British neglected them from their own, you know, just uh, let them grow on their own. Volume 3 is about how the colonies sort of began to revolt when the British, when the British tried to sort of reimpose mercantilism on them. Uh, and Volume 5 is the political, excuse me, Volume 4 is the political, military, economic history of the American Revolution.
0: And what would Volume 5 be about? Because, from what I hear, Volume 5 was supposed to be about the Constitution, but because of various handwriting issues, people were unable to decipher it until you were able to get to it. And now, since you've finished editing it, as I heard, you'll be able to get it published around 2019, so
1: uh, yeah, so the fifth volume uh, <clears throat> Rothbard the story. So, volume four is the Revolutionary War, 1775 to 1784. That's at least the title. And uh, the the fifth volume goes from about 1784 to 1791. So, it you, you, you takes basically the story up to the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. So, the Articles of Confederation was a system of, of governance that the, the now the 13 states, you could say, uh, belonged into is really enacted at the, the end of the of the war, and it was very decentralized, weak government, black taxing power, et cetera. And you know, usually the story is kind of you know very quickly went gone through in American history. They so said that was a problem, and then we had the Constitution, and it was great, and we started our modern system of government in 1789. George Washington became president, and you know the rest is history, kind of. And uh, Rothbard wrote this. Um he never finished well he he finished the book, excuse me, he never typed it up. He handwrote it and there were difficulties regarding the uh uh the, the dictating machine in which he recorded it into. And uh so this is sort of the final uh conclusion to the, the story at least, and it's sort of this it's a very important period because you know, a lot of people say it's the ultimate failure of, uh, you know, limited government, and this is why we need a strong national government to enact uniform tariffs and regulations and have a standing army, and etc. And uh really, from a libertarian perspective, this period is, is not really discussed so much.
0: Yeah, and the libertarians, they accept the Constitution as sort of the bedrock to which we should go to. And, of course, many good libertarians think that the Constitution is fundamentally not enough and at the same time, there is a strong libertarian critique of the Constitution's very nature and efficacy. Lysander Spooner in the 19th century says that the Constitution either facilitated the growth of government or was unable to prevent it, and thus it doesn't deserve to exist. And Murray Rothbard, if I'm correct, does he take that position in the end?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. so as you've mentioned, the Constitution is sort of sanctified by a lot of you know libertarians saying, oh, you know, it's mm. a great thing, it's, the foundation for limited government, you know, if we interpret it very strictly, government is sort of very limited. Um, you know, Rothbard took a very different view. He said the articles was, you know, was much better. He wouldn't have actually even preferred the articles, but he, he said, you know, the articles is much better. The problems in that era were either overblown and they're actually due to um, issues that were caused by the Revolutionary War. And sort of the recovery at the beginning of the constitutional era was actually due to sort of the unique circumstances. Um, so yeah, he, he would he would certainly agree with Lysander Spooner. And actually, what's funny is a lot of the quote unquote libertarian figures or those people who would argue for sort of a strict constitution, you know, interpretation of the Constitution, they were actually those, you know, they were sort of the um, The followers of those people known as the anti-federalists who actually didn't want to get the Constitution, they they fought against it. Sort of that strict constitutionalist view that libertarians like grew from those people who didn't want to have the Constitution to begin with. And arguing for a strict interpretation is sort of one way of actually weakening the Constitution, which was really intended to be a strong government that would give the national government uh, significant powers. Much like many uh, politicians and bureaucrats, etc., have uh, successfully been able to use it for.
0: Yeah, and it is to them that I think we owe the Bill of Rights. We owe them the credit for giving us the Bill of Rights, those ten amendments, which Rothbard considers some of the most libertarian things in the U.S. Constitution and even in American history.
1: Uh, yeah, so you're uh, you're correct on that. You know, it's funny about the Bill of Rights is though the. One of the main complaints about the Anti-Federalists, the anti-federalists during the ratification process against the Federalists was that, oh, there's no Bill of Rights. Something that's important to note, though, is that when they were talking about Bill of Rights or a list of amendments, that they not only referred to those uh, that we have in our modern Bill of Rights guaranteeing personal freedom. You know, you think of free speech, um, you know, and then, um, you know, right to bear arms, et cetera, um, you know, trial by jury. But also what you might consider structural amendments, so things that would actually limit the taxing power or make it, you know, require a two-thirds majority to pass certain regulations or pro- prohibitions on standing armies, etc. And the Federalists were sort of cunningly, once they got elected, particularly James Madison, once the government got started, they were sort of able to cunningly pass a Bill of Rights as sort of a somewhat broken promise to the Anti-Federalists. Uh, but it was a very weak Bill of Rights. So you look at it initially and most, uh, anti-federalists sort of said that this is, these are very weak, they're not going to do anything, and even the Federalists admitted that. But, you know, they certainly are very important and they've sort of grown, you know, those are really the ten Bill of Rights is kind of what most people would, what they would know about the Constitution, what they would you know, save the most. There weren't even any original document, basically. So it's sort of an interesting story behind that.
0: And ultimately, this comes back to Rory Rothworth's Matrix for understanding American history, or even history in general, and that is the essential conflict between liberty versus power. In his many essays, like The Anatomy of the State, he sets like, the private social power, which is, in many ways, essentially liberty, versus the state, which is the power that he rejects. And so that's the class analysis, so to speak, that he takes. Throughout much of the book, throughout all of the book actually, and thus there will be heroes and villains, and even flawed heroes and villains that sometimes get something right, because we have this clear, cut contrast between two things: history. What do you think of that, Matrix?
1: Uh, yeah, so that's a it's a great point. Uh, really, it's I think it's very uh, in, you know it, it's very enlightening. And uh, I certainly agree with it. The, you know, Rothbard viewed history as, you said, a struggle between freedom and coercion, uh, sort of the economic means or voluntary uh, action uh, versus the political means or coercion. And the the whole fight is basically who gets to control state power. Rothbard always viewed human progress as due to greater human liberty and, you know, flourishing and setbacks are due to better, basically, you know, movement towards greater uses of government coercion. And, you know, one, as you mentioned, one uh, sort of theme, uh, because a lot of people would sometimes say, oh, someone actually wasn't a libertarian, or they pushed for liberty because they later did this, or they also did this. And, you know, Rothbard's sort of uh, matrix, as you say, is important in this because he follows Lord Axon, you know, whose famous phrase, you know, you think of the quip, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, very often, as was shown in the uh, Conceived in Liberty uh, series, the, the four published volumes, as well as the fifth volume, and his later work uh, on American history, you might say the Progressive Era, etc. Uh, very often, sometimes liberty-loving individuals get control of government, and then they tend to be corrupted uh, by that. You know, they they the sort of power kind of takes over. So it's not necessarily a fact that they were never sort of liberty-loving to begin with, it's that they were, but then they sort of shifted, you know, they they, they took a a wrong turn, basically, so to speak.
0: And, of course, to some extent, this happens with Roger Williams, the great hero who fought for religious liberty, the separation of the church and state, and was kicked out by the Puritans until he found Rhode Island. And then he turned that into a colony for religious liberty and all the good stuff that we appreciate.
1: Uh, Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, there are individuals, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Roger Williams, uh, you know, he sort of later became a uh, his fight against uh, Samuel Gorton, I believe. Um, so, you know, he was prominent in that. And even some of Rothbard's sort of, some of his later heroes uh, that he mentions in, in volume four, such as uh, Sam Adams or uh, Thomas Paine, uh, et cetera, actually sort of volume five describes, they, uh, they, they sort of make some sort of rightward turn, so to speak. Uh, they uh, you know they become more conservative and more supportive of big government uh in their older years. And uh even with someone, you know, which Rothbard sort of described broadly in some of his later work, uh even someone like Thomas Jefferson uh go moves this turn where his, his first uh, presidential administration is actually for all most most things it's very good. But then later on sort of in his fight with you know, the road to the war with Great Britain, the War of 1812, he sort of turns to sort of proponent of big government. And this continually happens over and over again. Happened with the Jeffersonians, happened with the Jacksonians, happens with many characters and conceived in liberty, etc. So, I mean, Lord Acton was <laughs> was right, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And So what was the
0: historical context of libertarianism and even the intellectual circles that Rothbard was in? What was the context in which he wrote this great history, and why did
1: he write it, and what was he responding to? So it's a uh, a great question. So at least during this time period, so Rothbard wrote uh, this colonial, most of the the colonial American history and the early American history uh, during the 1960s, and uh, Rothbard sort of was allied with what you might consider the New Left, so he sort of viewed... um, uh sort of the left at the time as being more conducive to libertarian being more receptive to libertarianism. Uh, this is mainly due to the right, which he you know initially was always allied with and then later in his life uh sort of reallied himself with. Um it was sort of very hawkish on foreign policy. Uh you know, you can kind of see some of this uh sort of later boiled over in the uh the fifties and sixties uh Rothbard later left, left, you might say the new left in you know the early seventies. But you know, Rothbard sort of the good individuals during this time period were on the left and the bad individuals were on the right. Because it's something that a lot of libertarians mention is that the word liberal really, you know, initially referred to what we consider a classical liberal. You know, private property, peace, personal liberty, and not sort of what it's now envisioned as, as sort of being a social Democrat, you know, proponent of big government. Uh, and then, you know, some, which even now is becoming less so, sort of some, you know, um, some room left for personal liberty. So, you know, really at these volumes, the, um, the, and he says this in his essay, Left and Right, Prospects for Liberty, the forces of conservatism was sort of the reactionary big government view. They were the ones trying to impose mercantilism, uh, you know, sort of a new system, you re- reinstall you know, this sort of new system of feudalism in the colonies, etc. While those from the left were more radical, they were looking to dismantle this structure, and you know, really, in you know, many cases, try and bring out a more li- libertarian, uh, you know, political economic structure.
0: Yeah, and in many ways, Rothbard critiques conservatism. He actually attacks the Salem witch trials, of course, with that standard. He even critiques conservative heroes like Benjamin Franklin, George Washington. He critiques the Constitution. He critiques this idea that was floating around and still floats around that the American Revolution was some great conservative event, not like the evil French Revolution or Russian Revolution or anything like that. In fact, in many of his writings, he actually puts the French Revolution in the company of the American Revolution uh, as generally good things. And to some extent, I agree with Rothbard's view.
1: Uh, yeah, so it's a it's a good point. I mean, Rothbard uh, critiques sort of you know. So you might think of some of our famous heroes. You know, one of Rothbard's his his approaches in history was that he oh he, as I sort of mentioned earlier, he wanted to um, describe previously forgotten individuals and in events and sort of give them their their just due. You know, the old thing: history is written by the victors. So the victorious side generally gets to sometimes whitewash history and and you know promotes their favored people. Uh, at the neglect of say some people Rothbard would say should have been uh you know emphasized more. So two of those individuals that Rothbard um sort of heavily criticizes, as you mentioned, are George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. You know, he sort of considers Benjamin Franklin kind of an opportunist, sometimes liberal, uh yeah. a lot of times conservative, is sort of bellicose, pro-paper money. Uh you know, he had the Albany plan, which sort of much more centralized control of the colonies. In some cases, he sort of worked with Britain. Uh, George Washington's case is is very interesting because Rothbard views the American Revolution as sort of a, you know, actually the strength, and this is some new history that was coming around uh, when Rothbard was writing it, that, you know, the American colony, the rebels, or the patriots, they really only succeeded when they practiced guerrilla warfare. So whenever they practiced sort of the standard regimented you know, have you ever seen the movie The Patriot or something where, you know, you have a bunch of guys in lines and then they, you know, they walk to the other people, and then they fire and then they take a break, and et cetera? The colonists had no training uh, with that regard. And, you know, they were properly, you know, they're always beaten in those battles. And even George Washington, he always, he really wanted this approach. And, you know, most of his, I would say most of his battles, uh, he, you know, he lost. And the ones that he really won, you might think like the famous Battle of Trenton in the uh, late 19, 1776, you know, he's using sort of guerrilla tactics. And yeah, even, you know, he sort of criticized the conservatives during this time period. Again, a lot of these conservatives had sort of a, you might say now, sort of a neoconservative pro-foreign policy bias. Uh, and yeah, he said, you know, at least the beginnings of the French Revolution, you know, sort of had that similar radicalism structure, the main issue Uh, at least compared to America, was that, you know, feudalism, aristocracy, mercantilism was much more embedded in the country as opposed to America.
0: Yes, and America was protected by the Atlantic, and the French nation was landlocked by many monarchist powers who were opposed to the revolution, and at one point, some of them threatened to burn down Paris and attack it if the revolution went further or if the king was hurt or whatnot.
1: Uh, yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, you know, one of the you know Rothbard, related to this is Rothbard, You know, sort of says it's you know it's a happy accident with America. I mean, one you have the Atlantic Ocean, which basically one even for Britain when they were trying to you know they when they controlled the colonies, it naturally just makes it a lot harder. Uh, you know, the distance as opposed to even say Britain to France, uh, and then the second was that you had so feudalism was much harder to establish in America. Uh, simply because there was so much abundant land. And, you know, it was, it was just, you know, people could freely, you know, move and leave. You know, in Europe, it was, it was much more crowded and you basically all the areas in Europe were already settled and controlled by you know, various, you know, the monarch, uh, et cetera. Whereas America, you know, you had the, the West. The frontier was always you know, growing really until the end of the uh, 19th century. And that basically weakened feudalism and allowed for a more, you might say, uh, democratic or, you know, voluntary distribution of, uh, private property, uh, in America, which really sort of instilled the values of private property, et cetera, in its citizens.
0: Yeah. Yes. That's very good to mention. And of course, Rothbard and some other areas even said that the Jacobins were generally in the right because they were having to fight against these enemies, whereas America had a much more fortunate case in its own land.
1: Yeah, and uh, this is sort of similar in the in the um, first volume, Rothbard talks about the Puritan Levellers in uh, England during sort of the, uh, the, the the Cromwell era, and this is sort of similar. Why all the, these you know, sort of the libertarian wing of the Puritans, uh, they weren't able to um, take sort of the uh, the English you know, revolution, you might say, further, It's simply because. Uh, in doing so, they'd have to fight against feudalism, and you simply had too many entrenched interests uh, for that. And it basically, you know, became much harder to uh, basically fight against that when, you know, it's so it's so much uh, it's, it's much stronger foothold and, and much more embedded in the society.
0: I'm thinking of like the heroes now of the American Revolution
1: and the villains of it.
0: So, who are some of the heroes? for Rothbard.
1: So during the American Revolution, you could say the heroes, as opposed to George Washington, who might be said the military, uh, you know, villain, uh, you'd have the someone that you have been neglected, Charles Lee, uh, who was sort of the main proponent of guerrilla warfare, who was initially a uh, very high command. He later had some disputes with Washington. Uh, Rothbard really, uh, sort of praises him. Um, other sort of heroes during this time period would be, you might say, uh, especially Thomas Paine for his uh, common sense, um, you know, his, his pamphlet, he was very radical, he was, you know, a fiery denunciation of the state and king. And um, you also have guys like Sam Adams, uh, you know, sort of the loyal nine and later the Sons of Liberty, resistance to stamp acts, et cetera. You know, other heroes, the Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, et cetera. Uh probably out of those, because sort of as it would be explained in sort of the fifth volume, all those individuals uh somewhat become conservatized, really except for Patrick Henry, which uh Rothbard um always you know uh, you know always uh praised a lot and he becomes sort of especially prominent as being one of the most uh and anti- a leading anti federalists, one of them during the ratification debate. I mean the rat- yeah, the ratification debate. So those are those are sort of some of the uh, you know the sort of the heroes and villains we already kind of mentioned uh, Benjamin Franklin and uh, yeah again it's Rothbard is always big on highlighting people who you know sort of are somewhat forgotten Uh, you know nowadays we think about founding fathers you think about you know George Washington Thomas Jefferson uh, John Adams uh, Alexander Hamilton. You don't really think about, you know, uh, Sam Adams, Patrick Henry, uh, or even you might say George Clinton later on, etc. So, you know, that was always a big, um, you know, you know, theme in his work.
0: And speaking of, like, George Washington, I'm thinking, does Rothbard ever have some positives to say about him? Because in his later period, George Washington counseled us to... Be friends with nations, but not get into entangling alliances, and this is one of the big libertarian talking points nowadays, especially since Ron Paul brought it up to such a prominent number of people in such a prominent way.
1: Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a good point. So Rothbard, uh, because sort of the fifth volume ends in 1791, he doesn't really talk about that with uh George Washington. However, he does uh basically, you know, he does praise him at least you so he gives him his proper credit at the end of the fourth volume, you know, one of to to Washington's uh you, you might say he's sort of a proponent of big government. He was a Federalist, heavily sided with Alexander Hamilton, etc. uh to his eternal credit, uh he really did have multiple chances to be kind of uh, basically become a military dictator. <laughs> At the end of the American Revolution, uh, he could have just kept running as a president. Uh, he sort of stepped down after two terms, and that sort of set a very important precedent, basically, uh, really, until, I guess, Theodore Roosevelt, he tried to run again, and then later FDR, when he became president four times. Uh, and then, you know, he certainly does have his foreign policy, um, you know, his, his famous uh, address at the end of his uh, administration, uh, that, you know, it, it is... You know, those are, uh, you know, important characteristics. Uh, David Gordon, uh, you know, who's sort of a colleague of Rothbard and, uh, studied a lot of his work. He, he wrote a paper for the volume Reassessing the Presidency on George Washington. He kind of talks about some of the bad things as well as the good things. mainly, you know, he, he did have his, uh, his, you know, at the end not to get involved in entangling alliances. And also, uh, you know, I mean, he did not, he, he you know, he did have refused to become a monarch. Uh, which is certainly, in the modern day, kink and anus, I guess you could say.
0: And then, of course, during the Revolution, I don't know if Rothbard focuses on this as much, but let's think about Washington, who mainly treated many of his prisoners, in comparison to how the British treated the prisoners of war at the time, and to some extent how many Americans in the government treat the terrorists who are imprisoned or detained. Washington stands out as a
1: humanitarian in many respects. In this respect, yeah, no, that's that, that's a good point. I mean, again, that's something to uh, you know, to 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 consider. Um, and you know, yeah, I would definitely say, I mean, while this doesn't necessarily relate to his presidency, I mean, you certainly hear, okay, who are the three best presidents of all time? You know, that the standard list are always some combination of Washington, uh, FDR, and Abraham Lincoln. I think it's it, it's very clear that Washington, at least from a libertarian perspective, Washington would be by far uh, the top, the top president out of those three, at least. So, you know, there were, um, you know, he, he did do some, and you know, he, he, he was good in in, in, uh, in some respects and those deserve to be emphasized. I, sometimes I think, you know, his, his military career and some other things, uh, you know, I think it's, it's important to have a second look on those somewhat, but again, you know, not everyone's perfect. There's always... Bad people generally do some good things. Good people generally, you know, do some bad things as well. Yeah.
0: The thing about historical reputation, I was talking with a professor who I know, and he says that the intellectuals who critique the image of the heroes are needed, but sometimes they need to quiet down for the sake of the clean heroes that we do need as a people in order to look up to and be conscious of greatness and to look up to that. For example, if Jefferson owned slaves, we shouldn't necessarily, like, not mention that, but at the same time we should have a kind of clean image to see Jefferson as a hero, while the intellectuals with their almost endless intentions of critique should at least consider that.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's a a good point. It's certainly, especially in today's political climate, it's certainly becoming more and more favorable to sort of, you could say, criticize people for, you know, what might have just been sort of normal standards at the time. So, yes, the fact that Washington and Jefferson owned slaves and, you know, certainly not, you know, condoning that, uh, you know, even, you know, people at the time would criticize that, Uh, again, it's still... You know, it's somewhat you, you know, as you mentioned, I think it's good. It's it's one important to, you know, obviously to criticize those points, but to keep in consideration that, okay, you know, you have to somewhat evaluate people based on the times and, you know, you can't just sort of do a total rewriting of history, not based off of, you know, what their, you know, movements you know, their, their positions were on things, but just saying that, oh, you know, they did something bad, you know, or this little thing, you know, this thing that. You know, what other people might have been doing. So, okay, we're just going to kind of, you know, cancel them out of history, et cetera. And, you know, instead, sometimes you need to look at the actual, uh, people itself and kind of more of their actions rather than these things that, you know, in today's world we would, uh, we would criticize, uh, which is, you know, somewhat of an interesting, uh, thing to consider. Um, you know, I actually kind of a funny sense with the American Constitution, the one thing that, you know, as at least evolved as interpretation even for strict constitutionalists is something like cruel and unusual punishment. You know, what might have been considered cruel, you know, what might have considered normal back then, so just clipping someone's ears is now viewed as cruel and unusual punishment. people would even say that with the death penalty. That's just as a minor aside point. But I think you make a great uh point on that. You can't just criticize someone for saying, Oh, someone did this or, you know, someone was a racist or something like that, blah blah, blah for that time. So if de so facto, you know it's just you know, then that means that, you know, we have to just bury them, you know, dismiss
0: them. Before I move on to the general question of revisionist history and what Rothbard does with that, I think it could be instructive to look at Jefferson because he is one of the most eloquent defenders of liberty and freedom and civilization that America has ever known, and he's one of my, he's perhaps my favorite founding father in terms of brilliance. Yet at the same time, the way he owns slaves it sometimes seems to me odious at some respects even for that time. Especially with the alleged affairs, I mean the historians debate about. But at the same time I still think Jefferson deserves a place among the pantheon of heroes. I just think we need to consider it carefully and learn from him in that sense. His failures and his successes. But in some ways Jefferson definitely was against slavery. In the end, he wanted to find a way to abolish it. And he was definitely careful about how he spoke on Native Americans. He cared about them. He viewed them as different from the whites, but also viewed them as a civilization worthy of respect. If
1: I'm correct. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a good point. You know, when we think about Jefferson. You know, either obviously that you know ugly contrast between someone who praises liberty and then someone who owns slaves, and even though you know he never was really able to. You know, I guess uh, kick the you know the odious habit. Uh, you know, someone who at least when he wrote the initial draft of the Declaration of Independence, you know, sort of blamed criticized King George for slavery. It was taken out um, by you know, I guess you could say some of the other southern uh, delegates, and then the the one of the you know the Northwest Ordin- Ordinance. And um, during the Articles of the Confederation, he tried to basically get it. So uh, you know, try to ban uh the slave slavery in the Western territories. Uh, I mean it's a good point. You know, Jefferson, he um in many ways he was a proponent of liberty government, but really, you know, the, the slavery issue as well even sort of the Western uh territorial expansion issue, those kind of uh would later morph into problems, especially for the Democratic Party, which the Jacksonian Democrats you might say they had sort of some libertarian inclinations, but over time they just became basically sort of a slaveocracy. Uh, particularly the Southern and Western kind and eventually sort of the Northern Democrats uh, fused with the Republican, you know, into the Republican Party, or at least the anti-slavery Whigs. So it's certainly important, you know, that it's important to consider the libertarian aspects of someone or the, you know, the good aspects as well as the bad and sort of have a total, you know, opinion of them. I think uh that, you know, it's a, you know Jefferson is sort of a, a classic example of this now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I completely agree that we need to look at the complexities of the people that we talk about. And now as for revisionist history, Rothbard was a big champion of this type of history. I mean, normally, at least in conservative circles, when you hear revisionist history, you think Marxism. But then Rothbard thought of things a little differently, and so mm-hmm. he was revising the mainstream historians' views. But then again, history is, in a sense... Being endlessly revised by new information, new understandings, new times. So, in a sense, all history might be revisionist history. Am I right?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's always what happens. Just as any any place in science is that someone comes out with some sort of theory or conclusion, and then people they analyze it and then they critique it, and you usually build off of it, and then you you know you revise things. So you're always sort of going into you know a period of revision. I think in general, though, when it comes to history, now there's been, you know, trends that have, you know, evolved. I think there's sort of a general consensus history that you would – most people would see or at least most academics were, okay – you know, the Constitution was needed, the, uh, you know, the uh, the only way of getting rid of the problem of slavery was the Civil War, the Progressive Era was this very important time period, you know, we should have entered World War One or World War II, etc. And, you know, you kind of have at least somewhat of this broad history that we're sort of taught in, uh, you know, K through 12, that then sort of kind of sits in the back of our head as we become older and, I think Rothbard sort of was very big in kind of challenging that whole thing. He always had a very uh anti-America, or at least in terms of the, not anti-America, like in terms of criticizing a lot of its foreign policy or wars. Um, and he sort of, the proponents of big government were always strongly criticized by him and those who actually worked for limited government, he would always try and say that, hey, these guys would actually be the good guys. Yeah, he was very big into Uh, revisionist history and basically trying to have sort of the libertarian uh, history of the United States that would counter what you might consider traditional liberal history uh, as well as kind of conservative history.
0: That's a good summary of Rothbard's revisionism, and I think it has important lessons for libertarians to rethink our history and to meditate on history, because sometimes I see a lot of libertarians don't have as much curiosity about history as they should. Because if they do look into it they will find much to value in it, much to critique of course, but much to learn and much to understand. And they'll have sure footing on many ways, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's a I, I'm a big proponent of uh you know, I'm an economic historian, that's my main uh field of research and I agree with you completely, especially when it comes to libertarianism, because a lot of people say, "Oh, they're nice theories in practice." Of saying, "Oh, you don't need the FDA, or we don't need the Federal Reserve, or you know we could be non-interventionist, cetera. But then they say, "Oh, what about you know when you had massive adulteration and dangerous products like the you know up in Sinclair, the jungle with the meatpacking industry, or you had all these severe business cycles in the you know in the nineteen hundred, the nineteen hundreds, the eighteen hundreds, nineteen hundreds, or." you know, well, if we didn't intervene in World War One or World War 2 we'd all be speaking German now, um, et cetera. And, uh, you know, you actually have to look at, well, if you want to argue for these positions in the contemporary, you know, modern era, 2018, you need to have to say, well, actually, those problems were not as severe, or they were actually caused by other instances of government, et cetera. And, uh, you know, really, I think that, you know, most, you could say good libertarians should in some way have a very strong understanding of economic history, uh, you know, or really history in general if they want to be able to argue their points effectively.
0: And then you have Rothbard's both interesting points and stuff that I think will surprise even libertarians, like, for example, democracy and liberty are viewed in libertarian circles as opposites, whereas Rothbard... He is not a complete Democrat in the small D, but he does think that democracy and liberty had a historical relation to one another and that this was a real connection between democracy as a form of government and liberty in general. And also, in his historical heroes, Rothbard even includes Rousseau to an extent. Rousseau is a kind of mixed bag, but Rousseau does get positive notice,
1: interestingly enough. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point, you know, when it comes to democracy and liberty. I mean, from a theoretical perspective, you know, you read Man economy and state and power and market, Rothbard critiques uh, democracy. But in terms of sort of his historical analysis, he always praises it and he says that, you know, when the people had more control, et cetera, it was sort of a libertarian direction. I mean, the main reason, at least, is that the structure of the colonies uh, back then was you had a royally appointed governor and sort of a council. Uh, You might consider the upper legislature versus sort of the democratically elected assembly, which was the the you know the lower house or the lower legislature, and the you know the assembly was really the resistance the the democracy that you know was related to with it to this sort of oligarchical mercantilism of the governor and the council et cetera, Um, and you know for Rothbard, sort of the libertarian democracy was when you had it was very local. And people were represented through political units, sources you might think of towns or state legislatures, et cetera. It wasn't sort of direct in the sense that the people would you know or you know for the central government, it was really the people would work through indirect, you know the state or local unit. Um, you know you'll see this you know analysis regarding state legislatures in volume five. Um, and even in the progressive era, uh, he talks about this as well. I have a paper sort of talking about uh, how the, um, you know, the, through, through the cities, basically, uh, democracy through the cities, at least Rothbard sort of viewed that in a libertarian direction. Um, so for Rothbard, you really, and some of this is, you know, criticized, or at least not always thought, is that Rothbard thought that short term compulsory rotation in office, those two planks, uh, those were sort of libertarian. They would keep politicians sort of close to the people. Uh, with that though, and this is something Rothbard, uh, mentioned in an essay, published essay as well, as this volume is that, you know, you have a, a bill of rights that l- really limits government intervention. And, uh, you know, you know they basically prevent politicians from really being able to do, you know, do anything. Uh, Rothbard makes a couple of points in this is that, you know, people always say, oh, democracy leads to the tyranny of the majority and that certainly was a problem, it became a problem, especially, you might say, in the uh, second half of the 19th century. But Rockford emphasizes it's not really due to the majority per se. Generally, the masses are sort of disinterested. Uh, it's hard to get them whipped up in politics, but it's really it's still due to elites. It's due to elites working behind the scenes who sort of misuse masses. You know, if you look at it, both the Federalists and the Progressives, they were really actually very anti-Democratic uh, when they were speaking honestly, but if they wanted to enact uh, their policies of big government, you know, publicly, they were always very pro democracy. They say, oh, the government will be everything's elected by the people, et cetera. And, you know, really it's the, uh, the seemingly democratic uh, choice that would really allow for bigger government. The tyranny of the majority is really controlled by elites kind of working behind the scenes, both past and present.
0: Yes, and there's definitely an elitist strain in both the Democratic and Republican parties. I mean, both of them are elderly-run, in a sense, and both of them have a kind of air of superiority over the people. And that can be very grating, especially since the Democrats and Republicans are, in general, believers in the state and some form of administrative welfare warfare state or one another.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a great point. Uh, I mean, especially if you look at sort of Rothbard, he's not so much in volume five, uh, but especially in the progressive era as well as his other writings, Rothbard is always big into what's known as power elite analysis. So in terms of political science, you know, the idea is that either, you know, you, instead of saying that, okay, the people are the prime movers, et cetera, you know, and they choose the familiar great leaders that we all know and love, sort of power lead analysis is actually, well, it's really the people are just kind of sort of being used and you have these elites, these business uh, or, you know, bureaucrats, other sort of family connections, et cetera, that are really kind of working behind the scenes. You know, they're the ones sort of with the power. They're kind of, you know, they have people or politicians sort of working for them and there's a vice versa relationship. The business businesses working for them, the politicians working for them, et cetera. But it's sort of, you know, known, uh, even today as sort of the ruling class. You look at, you know, where most elites get their degrees. It's generally at the Ivy League schools. They're connected with, uh, various families, you know, political dynasties, the Bush dynasty, the Clinton dynasty, Rockefeller, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, you can go through history. Kennedy's another prominent one, of course. And, uh, again, it's really much more of an elite, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, situation than rather that anyone can be a president and, you know, do all this great stuff, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's a connection-based network, you know, connection-based profession, absolutely.
0: Yes, and it's only very few people who are, in a sense, outside the political system that get to be presidents. Andrew Jackson, even him, the great populist, had political stuff even before, And Donald Trump was a businessman, of course, and even Reagan had some political experience as governor of California,
1: if I'm correct. Uh, yes, yeah. So even those guys, I mean, again, uh, yeah the uh you know traditionally until you know Donald Trump you always had to be somewhere in the military you know had some political experience or you know some military connection you know general et cetera uh at least for you to be president and uh you know but you know Trump didn't have that, but even then you know he was still very say he's involved in politics uh you know he clearly you know walked the walk with those people he was you know gave donations et cetera so i mean it now the illusion is that anyone, I mean, can can be this way. Even someone such as Obama, who sort of had a very, you know, meteoric rise. I mean, he still had very prominent uh, financial backers um, that you, you know, you, that, that sort of, you know, characterized his, his rise through the Senate and then the president presidency. This guy named Marty Nisbet or George Soros, etc. Uh, so again, it, it is a connection based. It, it's not. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's connection-based is sort of the, the illusion that we're kind of taught in, uh, you might say, in a you know, high school civics course.
0: I agree. We need to at least shatter the illusion to some extent because you just, you just need to look at history to shatter it. And then the reason we need to do this is because we need to get people to lose faith in the state and if you're having faith in the state, you're having faith in something that's very bad for human civilization, that is problematic in its promises. It makes good promises but doesn't keep them. And it is exploitative and it wastes your money.
1: Uh yeah, no, exactly. I mean again that's the that's the main um you know, uh, you know, thing you have to drive, and uh, you know, the the point you drive about the state, and uh, you know, it's kind of funny because you, know, you would say the state's coercive. You know, it, it exploits people. It it you know, it robs people. Taxation, et cetera. Most people, they end up sort of, you know, they don't have these views. They they revere the state, and the way it's sort of been described by libertarians is it's sort of what you know, I'd say a Stockholm syndrome, which is when someone gets kidnapped uh, you know, they're they're locked in captivity and then they eventually come to, you know, desire the situation. They say, Oh, this you know, this guy protects me, they provide me with food, you know, shelter, et cetera. I can't possibly imagine my life without them. And it's kind of the way of the government. The way, you know, governments historically evolved was through conquest. You had one, you know, marauding group, they take over another group, they'd start to you know, steal resources from them, you know, that became taxation, and they started to, you know, defend their territory, that became sort of modern government systems, and then the people sort of acquiesce, and then they're, you know, taught to respect and revere the rulers, and before you know it, they kind of forget how life was or how life could be without them, and uh, then you're sort of stuck into the modern situation, you know, you've been kidnapped, and now you don't want to leave.
0: (laughs) Yes. I, I want to, regre- to digress a bit about the American Revolution in libertarian perspective, because I've heard some prominent libertarian voices say that the American Revolution was ultimately a failure and a bad idea, and that, and that it was basically a sham. Rothbard's perspective is that it was a good thing, it was a libertarian thing, whilst notwithstanding. And I think I agree with Rothbard in the end.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, Jeff Hummel, who's a historian, he's a uh, colleague of mine. Uh, he, wrote, he recently wrote an article on this, sort of, and I spoken about it. very influenced by Rothbard on this point. Some libertarians would say that, okay, you know, the American Revolution, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was radical, it wasn't libertarian, etc. But actually, sort of as Rothbard talked about and sort of later Hummel, you know, yes, there were flaws that didn't bring about, you know, the... Uh, it's in very, you know, the sort of the the libertarian world, but it was still this extremely significant event. You look at, uh, one, it sort of led to movements regarding the abolition of slavery, uh, ended feudalism in North America, at least in the, you know, the colonies. Uh, land was redistributed mostly back to the people who were sort of the just, you know, the rightful owners of it. Um, you had new democratic constitutions that allowed for, you know, wider suffrage and, uh, greater voice separation of church and state, Bill of Rights, etc., and then it sort of, as we talked about earlier, it influenced, you know, all these other revolutions in Europe. So, you know, it certainly was, you know, there weren't, you know, so Rothbard does talk about, you know, some ways in which the war was handled or how Tories were treated, you know, those colonists who supported staying with uh, Great Britain, but, you know, overall it was, it was certainly a, a libertarian and sort of radical event that definitely, you know, changed the status quo. Uh, And I would say, you know, it's a legacy, certainly for the better. And to some extent, I would say that the
0: same is true for the French Revolution. Certainly Rothbard and Mises said as much.
1: So many libertarians... Uh, Yeah, I mean, you could also also make that point. Uh, Interestingly enough, some, you know, sort of contemporaries, while guys like Jefferson viewed it more favorably, people such as Patrick Henry... I believe, are very suspicious to it. Uh, Certainly, again, it's a a radical movement. Uh, Definitely within the, you know, there obviously were very important differences with the American Revolution, but it was inspired, as were other revolutions inspired in Europe. And uh, that you could at least say, you know, it certainly wasn't the same um, clean path is in America, but that certainly eventually led to, you might say, the end of uh, monarch, you know, of, of a lot of monarchies and, uh, you know, greater uh, human choice in Europe. So, I mean, really, yeah, the, the American Revolution, you know, you might say it was new, unique and it was only, you know, or at least it, was, it only succeeded due to sort of unique circumstances, but that doesn't denigrate from the consequences and, you know, what it sort of signified.
0: Yes, and as for the apparently clean passage of the American Revolution, I'd say that in many ways the revolution was a civil war, and Rothbard brings this point up, and I'm sure many good historians who are not libertarians bring this up. We patriots fought against the loyalists ruthlessly, and they against us ruthlessly, and they were kicked out in a way permanently that the royalists of the French weren't quite kicked out permanently. And Robert Palmer, one of Rothbard's favorite historians, brings this up in this analysis of the American Revolution, that it was, in fact, a radical movement, and that it was violent, and that it was a civil war, and that it was not in any way a conservative movement.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you could about it, in a sense it was you know also an American secession obviously which some people have, have mentioned you know we're trying to declare independence from Great Britain not trying to overthrow the government in Great Britain but in many ways it was a revolution because uh, there was a significant portion of the population who uh, wanted to stay within the uh, the British Empire and in fact you know that was one of the main reasons you know the American Revolution was very costly at least in terms of economics you look at the uh, standards of living and sort of wartime destruction, um, it was enormously costly. Uh, and then you also have to take into consideration a lot of, you know, Tories or people who wanted to stay within the uh, the British Empire, they ended up leaving or sort of kicked out, you know, taking their, as much of their property as they could with them. And obviously that leads to a loss in capital in the in America. And so it certainly was, it was a violent revolution and it was uh, costly in terms of human lives, private property, et cetera. I mean, any, you know, that's always been one privilege of America that, for the most part, really, with the exception of the American Revolution and the, uh, the Civil War, at least in the, the South, because there weren't too many battles fought in the North, uh, there haven't really been many, uh, much instances of sort of wartime destruction, et cetera. We've always, you know, it's always been in, uh, far off places, kind of, which is, has certainly benefited us. I wanna thank you so much for joining
0: me on the show. I think your insights are valuable and I wanna know when is the book coming out?
1: Well, uh so I'm hoping um the the goal is let's just say a year from now. So the fall of twenty nineteen. I think that's that's when we're uh that's when we're planning on having it come out. So it, it should be out uh, by the, uh, by basically by the fall of 2019, in time for the 40th uh, anniversary of the fifth of the fourth volume, which came out in 1979.
0: Good. So, I want to thank you again, and I appreciate your work, and I'm definitely looking forward to the next volume.
1: Great, thanks for having me on.
0: Until next time, this has been the Letter of Liberty, where we have discussed literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun.